As a small business owner, I've had my share of accounting, tax, bank feed, and app issues. Some could say I'm a mess, kind of like some of your clients. But as I reflect on the last three years of my business, the one app that I've had not any problems with is OnPay. It's been set it and forget it payroll. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor OnPay later in the episode. And as of a half hour ago when we were recording, state regulators officially closed Silicon Valley Bank. Oh, wow. It's they officially shut down. failed. First FDIC insured bank to fail this year. Oh, wow. They shut them down. That's Cal- it's, they are out of California, and I know there are a lot, the state regulators there are a lot stricter. But this is FDIC. This is, this is, oh, this is real. FDIC that, wow. Hello, and welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. And we are coming to you live from the OnPay recording studio. David, we just got off a call with Ken Bishop, the president and CEO of NASBA. That's going to be a bonus interview episode that we release into this feed. David, your instant reaction. I, like, well, for starters, Blake, you're starting to turn us into these Twitch steamers. Like We're doing two straight hours of streaming now. <laughs> like We're never going to stop streaming. We're just going to have a stream going all the time. But no, my head, the interview was great, actually. it was. I'm really thankful that Ken Bishop came on. He's the president of NASBA. But he said something that completely blew my mind. Because, you know, talking about this, right now it's a three-stool. You got some experience. You got some extra education hours. You need the CPA exam. And he said, and I had to make him repeat it because it's blown my mind so much, the CPA exam is just proof that you're kind of an entry-level person. So when yeah. you get those three letters, like if dot, in my my now obviously I work inside the industry. I know different accountants. I think some are idiots, some aren't idiots. Okay, I get that. <laughs> but send your email to Blake at blakeoliver.com. No. So, but if I think about consumers, right? They see those three letters. They assume you know what the hell you're doing. If I go to a doctor's office and they have DR in front of their name. And the yeah. on the wall. I assume they're competent. So yeah. like, I, I just cannot believe that's the take because the, the market does not think that. So as the brand, that is not true. But obviously, when the president of NASBA says, we give a test to certify you as a CPA, and it basically just means you're, you're good Entry for level. year one. Yeah. Oh, I, uh, I, sorry, I'll stop now. Stop. No, no, my, I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to sleep for days because of this. Yeah, that was it. That was really interesting. Um, and I should say for our listeners, uh, welcome Paul Barnhurst to the program. Yes, Paul, sorry. No, that's all right. Uh, Paul Barnhurst is the FPNA guy, hosts the podcast FPNA Today. Uh, so great to have you with us. Welcome. CPA, thank, not CPA. Thank you for having me. I'm not a CPA. So I'm enjoying this conversation. All right. You're, you're, <laughs> you've got your popcorn out. You are eating it as, as this goes on. Well, let, we'll, we'll get back to, I, I still want to hear your thoughts on the profession and the CPA thing, the CPA, non-CPA as an FPNA person, right? Yeah. I would love to hear that. Uh, but David, let's get back to this for a moment. I came away from that conversation thinking, wow, we have really screwed up as a profession by replacing the education requirement with an educate wait, replacing the experience requirement with an education requirement. I mean, we have one year of experience required to be a CPA, but five years of education. And to me, it should be at you know, two years of experience, three years of experience, right? That's way more valuable. And I think there's a big difference between somebody who's worked in a firm for a year and somebody who's been there for three years. And we can totally bring down the cost of getting the CPA by reducing the education requirement, you know, opening it up to people who are non-accounting students if they can pass the CPA exam and just make them work for three years in a firm, something like that, right? And it solves the talent crisis because now firms have people who are going to come in and, and, and work. I don't know. That seems simple. Well, it, it would make it... I mean. Uh, I'm sorry. I can't even put it together. I thought be, so really it's the working, right? And if that's yeah. the case, maybe the exam should not be given until you've worked for three years. Maybe. I don't like to prove that you, I don't know. It feels like, are they prematurely giving out those letters? That's what's going through my brain right now. I don't <laughs> well, know. we'll put that interview again, interview with Ken Bishop, president of NASBA in the feed as a bonus episode following this one. This one. Um, but let, you know, let's let's talk about something else, right? We've been talking about CPA stuff for uh, an hour. Let's talk <laughs> with Paul Barnhurst, um, FPNA guy. Paul, will you give us a little bit of your background in financial planning and analysis? Tell us, you know, what is yeah, it? That, what yep. do you do? So I'll run you through my background. So you know, I actually started my career in procurement, 
for the government. Pretty quickly realized I didn't see myself writing contracts for the rest of my life. You know, went back to school, got a finance degree as well as a master of science information management, went to work for American Express. And initially working kind of, it was called a financial analyst, but I was really doing report writing and an opportunity came to get promoted. And it was an FP&A. I really didn't know what FP&A was, but I'm like, I want to get paid more. I'm going to apply for this job. I know the hiring manager. I feel like a lot of some of the work I'm doing relates to it. So they hired me and I've been in FP&A ever since. So I worked for American Express in business travel and then in their prepaid division doing budgeting, forecasting, business partnering, and all the, all the FP&A things. And then I went to work for a global automotive company in the SaaS space called Solera and worked for them for about five years, managed a couple different divisions in the automotive space in both uh, aftermarket and dealerships. Then I went to work for uh, DigiCert, a digital certificate company, their global cybersecurity for about a year. And then a little over a year ago, I started my own business. And today, you know, I host a podcast, as you mentioned, FPNA Today, all things FPNA. I also do a lot of content creation, work with a number of different uh, vendors in the software space, particularly FPNA planning platforms, tools, EPMs, CPMs, whatever you want to call them. You know, I've seen demos of probably 70 over the last year tools. I've talked to 50 plus CEOs. And then I also do training. I do Excel, FPNA and data visualization primarily. Awesome. And I'm putting the link to the FPNA Today podcast in the live stream. Thanks everyone who's joined us live. As a reminder to our podcast listeners, you can subscribe to us on YouTube, get notified when we go live and chat with us and ask questions. So if you've got questions for Paul, put them in the chat. Blake, you missed the opportunity for your very first question to Paul. What's this that? Is the, you, have a, you can get a data point here. Paul decided he wanted to make more money. So your question should be, how come you didn't go get your CPA? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's supposed to say it because of the 150 hours. Oh, I, I see. I don't know. Did that have anything to do with it, Paul? I toyed with getting my CPA when I was working for American Express just because there were some opportunities. I'm like, oh, that role would be interesting, but I didn't have a CPA. But for me, it came to that point. I was already in my 30s. I'd already done an MBA. I'd already done a Master of Science in Information Management. I'm like, do I really want to go spend all the time to, you know, study and prepare when it's not needed for most of the roles I have, right? Yeah. So for me, if I started my career over, I might I might have gone the, you know, CPA route because I can see some benefit doing the couple years of audit, all those type of things. I am like both of you, I don't really quite understand the 150 hour rule. You know, I've heard you guys talk about it. I've known about that for a long time. And I, I, I don't know, it, it, it's odd the way the CPA works to me compared to other professions and how they typically do it. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like it's creating some challenges in the field. But are, are there certifications in FPNA that people go get? There, there are. So, I mean, not not a lot of people get them right now. But there is the best one out. It's, I don't know the best one, but the accredited one out there, which is very good, is from the Association for Finance Professionals. So they have two certifications. They have the tre- the certified treasury professional, which is very common. They have over ten thousand people to have that. And then they did more recently one for FP&A, which they have a work requirement. You take two tests. I'm actually studying to do the FP&A certification right now. Take the first test at the end of this month. You know, in addition to that, you know, you see some people that go get the FMI, if you're familiar with that, Financial Modeling Institute. They have a modeling certification. Some are CPA. Some do CFA. But there's really not an industry standard out there. The closest to, an, you know, like I said, the accredited is the AFP which is becoming bigger. They're growing as an FP&A organization. Got it. And and so you're working on that one right now. Mm-hmm. What do you have to do to get it? There, there's a work requirement, and I'm trying to remember if it's one or two years. And then there's two tests you have to take. The first test, they waive if you have your CPA. Okay. And you only have to take the second test. Got if it. you don't have your CPA, you have to take both tests. And this is the certified corporate FPNA professional. Yeah, it's called the uh, FPNA F- certification. I think now FPAC is the acronym. FPAC. I kind of like that's that's catchy. I like yeah, it. they changed it. It used to be something else. I think it used to be mm-hmm. certified finance professional or something. All right. So I guess since you know we're a current event show, we talk about accounting and technology, and now it's finance and technology because you're on the program. <laughs> what what is hot in the intersection of technology and finance? Well, you know, I think what's really uh, interesting right now is to watch what's going on with Silicon Valley Bank. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you've all seen the news. The one the latest I read about an hour or two ago is they couldn't raise capital. So they've already hired a firm to sell them. 
and they're starting talks of who's going to buy them. And so I think that's huge just in the technology space because there's so many startups and CFO technology right now. You know, how does that all play out? How does that impact them? What, you know, how does it spook the market? So it'll it's be really interesting to, to watch. I, mm -hmm. I feel like I was looking at that this morning and it put me back to sitting in my car in the Home Depot parking lot in 2008 when I realized like, oh, this is kind of a big deal that's happening. And, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, yes, lots of the VCs, they're the darling. And mm -hmm. British companies, will, foreign companies, when they come here to be a startup, they'll go get a bank account there and they'll get their San Francisco cell phone number, right? Yep. So they have a U.S. presence. So not only do they do their banking with Silicon Valley Bank, right, and their, their true banking, Silicon Valley Bank offers rails and APIs and technology. So a lot of these apps that we use, payments apps. Melio is running on part of their rails. They're on Evolve, they're on Chase, and they're on Silicon Valley Bank. So the, there's apps that are out there that are running on this tech stack as well. And that's what really worries me is like, if something goes down, like, are people, I actually asked on Twitter today, like, are there going to be issues? Like, are people seeing money movement issues anywhere? Because it's, there's lots of apps that are built on their tech stack as well. It's not just a banking relationship. Yeah, no, it is fascinating. I've seen uh, Peter Thiel has recommended all his portfolio companies pull their money out. Goes, there's no harm in doing it. Just be safe. I know a few other. other... Than... So arguing for a run on the bank, great. Yeah, I, I thought about that as well. I'm like, no, there is some. Your portfolio companies may be fine, but there's a contagion that happens, right? If the bank has a run, yeah. how does that spill to the overall market? And that's what will be interesting to watch. And how does that? You know, freeze capital. Are people a lot less likely to invest in tech companies? It's already slowed down. You know, so is there even a bigger concern around runway? So I think, you know, what will be interesting is to watch this unfold, see how quickly they can find a buyer, right? Because I'm sure markets want this to be resolved as quick as possible. So, yep. Blake, I put a link in the chat for you to bring up, and maybe Paul can help us digest this a little bit. Um, essentially, it's a breakdown of some of these medium posts about what's going on with Silicon Valley Bank. And they have great graphs of how a traditional bank is versus what the way Silicon Valley, uh, Valley Bank's balance sheet was. And maybe Paul, with being the FP&A guy, can explain the lack of planning here or maybe <laughs> what's going on. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by OnPay. OnPay is built for accountants, and with 30 plus years of payroll experience, they can be the payroll partner you can always rely on. They offer a dashboard to manage all your clients in one place, and when I say manage, I probably should say balance that fine line between control and delegation. OnPay lets you keep 100% control, you can delegate payroll to someone at your firm, or hand off payroll duties to your client. But no matter who runs payroll, OnPay always takes care of all tax payments and filings, even local filings. And with integrations with QuickBooks Online, Xero, and QuickBooks Desktop, you can use OnPay across your entire client base regardless of the accounting GL they are using. OnPay's partner program offers free payroll for your firm, discounts or a rev share, and a dedicated support team of in-house payroll experts who will do all the heavy lifting. From setting up your dashboard to adding your clients and their employees, they'll even enter any prior wages to make it easy to switch. If you're looking for a great product with great support to match, check out OnPay. To learn more about switching your clients to the award-winning OnPay Payroll and HR, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash OnPay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash O-N-P-A-Y. OnPay, switch to better payroll. So there's a chart here. I like this. TDL, TLDR, how banks work. And we've got a chart showing assets with cash investments and loans. Mm -hmm. And cash is actually a very small amount. Yep. And then we've got the liabilities, which is equity, debt, and customer deposits. And customer deposits are the largest amount. Yep. So yeah, you want you want to give us a like a little uh you know refresher on how these how these entities, you know, make money, how they or, work, why right. why they're what the risk is? Yeah, I mean typically a bank, right, they're gonna pay you something for your money, a lot less they're gonna than they're gonna loan it for. Mm -hmm. And they're gonna also loan more than they have to keep. So typically a bank might keep 10% of those deposits. You know, there's some kind of ratio the bank, the federal government says you have to hold so much in reserve. The and rest the you can lend out. Yeah, that. the cash. Yeah. So, right, if let's say I give them $1,000, they can lend out 900 of that. Mm -hmm. And so they'll lend that and they'll keep $10. And so they can keep growing those loans with having a very low amount of deposits being held. And so that's where the run concern 
outcomes, right? Look at the cash they have. If that cash all goes away, they got to access the markets. And if they can't access the markets, that's when right. you have a bank run or, you know, the bank either goes under, somebody acquires it or the government steps in. I mean, if we all remember 2008, that's what happened with a lot of these is they ran out of cash, had bad investments, they were going belly up and they couldn't meet their obligations. So Peter Thiel tells his portfolio companies, pull your money out of SVB. They mm-hmm. go pull, pull their money out. Now SVP, SVP is out of cash, so they have to sell investments to raise cash. And they sold at a huge loss, apparently. They have all these bonds that they've issued, I imagine, to tech companies, right? Yeah. yeah so, what, so actually, mostly what they sold were treasuries. Oh, really? And they had like 30-year okay. treasuries. Down, and they sold, them, they, they sold them they before have. Peter Thiel asked for a run. That came after. So what spooked everybody is they decided to take a loss. They wanted to, you know, get some more short-term capital. And so they sold a bunch of bonds at a $1.8 billion loss. Wow. And then the market got spooked. And at the same time, they tried to raise some capital. They issued some securities and they couldn't raise anything. And so that's when they announced this morning they were looking to be bought. Because they recognize, you know, it's scaring everybody right now. And they're shut off to the markets. Mm-hmm. So how do you think this is going to play out, Paul? Do you have any, you know, crystal ball you compare into? I mean, right. My crystal ball is probably as murky as anyone else's. But I, my guess would be in the next 24 to 96 hours, they get acquired by another bank. I mean, I don't think there's a scenario where they collapse and they just go away. I think the... Uh, impact is too big and they have too valuable of a portfolio for that to happen. But I don't, I don't think they survived this. I think there'll be a new entity. Mm-hmm. Well, David, I like always getting listener mail. So I wanted to share one of these uh, tweets that we got. Todd Channel, Channel said at cloud accounting podcast one of the most important things owners partners and managers can do to retain talent is to stop doing business with clients who are disorganized unresponsive excessively whiny unreasonably demanding <laughs> and slash or abusive protect your staff and i wanted to call that out because is this why i got fired from my firm <laughs> is that why you got fired from your firm yeah i don't know david were you a difficult client i were you unreasonably demanding? Were you, you excessively your... whiny, David? L- lots of cap, all caps emails all the time. <laughs> did, did you, um, did you, yeah, did you use your podcast voice when you were talking to them? Well, I'm going to ask for some money back now that I know that it doesn't matter. Just the CPA is all an equal now. I could, I could get some money back. <laughs> uh, Continue on. Sorry. No, no, that's all right. I, I just wanted to share that uh, to make sure we got to it. And of course, you can always send your emails to cloudaccountingpodcast at earmarkcp.com. You can also tweet at us. We are at cloudacctpod on Twitter, and we love hearing from you. David, where, what, what else is top of mind for you? I, like, I didn't have time to go through my articles like I normally do because we were in that interview with Ken Bishop. Uh, I do have stories about remote work. I've got, oh, here's a really good one, fraud. Paul, this might be a good one for us to discuss with you. Financial crime, white collar crime. Most corporate fraud goes undetected. Yes, this is a story that caught my attention on CFO Brew, which is a- <laughs> That's because most of the CPAs are one year of experience doing the audits. <laughs> well, that's one way to think about it, right? I, I think that's definitely a theory. Uh, CFO Brew is a subsidiary or a sub newsletter of- uh, uh, morning brew. So you can subscribe to this, get their, their emails in your inbox. And, and this one really caught my attention. So the story here by Drew Adamek is, I'll just read the beginning. A steady, constant undercurrent of fraud and dubious accounting tricks seem to run through the corporate world, possibly destroying $830 billion of equity value a year, according to a new academic study. The problem appears to run deep. According to the study, 41% of companies allegedly misrepresent their financial reports. That's 41% allegedly misrepresent their financial reports. 10% of large publicly traded companies are allegedly committing securities fraud, and two-thirds of corporate fraud goes undetected. I mean, that's kind of crazy, right? 10% of large publicly traded companies are allegedly committing securities fraud, according to the study. And so you wonder, well, how did they figure this out, right? Because saying that fraud is undetected is like proving a negative. How do you know how much you're not finding? 
And the way that this study did it, the way uh, these re- this researcher did it, Alexander Dyke, professor of finance at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, they looked at what happened after Enron. So when Arthur Anderson collapsed, you know, because the auditors didn't uh, totally miss the massive accounting fraud going on in Enron, there were new auditors and investors that came in to analyze the firm's former clients. And so they compared what the situation was before Enron with the Arthur Anderson clients and the ones after, because the new auditors were you know, more rigorous, obviously, right? They realized, oh, we better check these work papers. Uh, and then they, they used the differences to estimate the amount of fraud in the economy at large. So like, just think about that. 41% of companies are engaging in, or are misrepresenting their financial reports. And 10% are actually committing securities fraud. So, Paul, I want to get your reaction to that. You know, really high numbers. It's uh, surprising that they're saying 41% of companies, you'll have to read more into that. But definitely, I mean, I've seen things in my career that are questionable at best, right? I can remember, and sometimes downright, I would say illegal. You know, I, I remember having a a leader of one of the businesses I worked at saying you have to pick and choose what payments you recognize so you could hit budget and hold things over for the next year. And I'm like, no, no, that's not quite how accounting works. You know? Yeah. Or, you know, so I've seen, I've seen things like that. I've had contracts hidden from me so they could recognize the, the, the money the next year. Didn't find out till the next year because mm-hmm. they only wanted to recognize a portion of it so they could hit budget. So there's, I mean, I think there's a lot of playing that goes on because right. You're incentivized to hit the budget, not to follow the accounting rules. You're incentivized to hit the quarter numbers. And if a lot of people, they think they can get away with it, unfortunately will do it. You know, and I've had to raise more than one issue over my career. I've been asked to do journal entries one time that I wasn't comfortable with. And I said, no, I won't do them. Someone else wants to process them and put their name on them. And, you know, Controllership wants to sign off on it. That's fine. But I'm not, I, I refuse to put my name on those journal entries. Unfortunately, not everybody is as ethical <laughs> as that, and they're willing to do it or, or overlook it. I think the thing about that 41% number that kind of goes to accounting is, well, so these f- companies are misrepresenting their financial reports. Like the auditors are missing it is what that's saying, right? That, that like you said, David, these auditors with one with no experience sometimes, right? <laughs> 80, 80% of the work in audit is done by people with like less than two years of experience. And that was uh, uh, from uh, Chris uh, from Audit Club gave us that stat, which makes sense, right? Because, you know, most auditors are right out of school. They don't mm-hmm. know what they're doing. How, how are they going to find any of this stuff? And and so, so you so wonder – sorry, go ahead, David. Oh, it's, so that article, because this just ties back to breaking news. So that article said <laughs> – how many corporations are playing securities fraud? 10% of, of large publicly of traded large companies. Okay. Publicly, so, 41% so, so, overall. Okay, so but, Silicon but, Valley but, Bank sorry, CEO. Okay. I, this is important. The 41% right. number is not that they're they're not committing fraud, but their their financial reports are misstated. Or sure, yeah, which is different. Yeah, there, there's, different, mat- right. there's misrepresentation. All right, right. so then this is going to tie back to this article. So four weeks, uh, within the last two weeks, the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank sold $3.57 million worth of stock. And as of a half hour ago, when we were recording, um, state regulators officially closed Silicon Valley Bank. Oh, wow. It's they officially shut them down. failed. First FDIC-insured bank to fail this year. Oh, wow. They shut them down. That's Cal- it's, they are out of California, and I know they're a lot. the state regulators there are a lot stricter. But this is FDIC. This is, this is oh, this is deal. FDIC that, wow. And I mean, in mind, like, you know, this goes to that game, right? Like. How convenient that he got this cash out, you know, two weeks well, ago. Well, so this could this could be a real problem for startups because FDIC insurance, standard insurance is only $250,000 per depositor per bank. And there's a lot of startups that could have millions of dollars at SVB. Yeah, and and what I'm reading it says so the you know, the FDIC said on March 10th the closure was ordered Order was issued by the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation. Oh, and they made FDIC the receiver. Which is all named, which is also named the FDIC as the receiver, right? Because they're fe- yeah. federal deposits. So they're, they're the one who's going to have to step in and manage it all. But California is the one who made the decision. Interesting. Yeah, this could be a real problem. It, it, I, I can't imagine it won't be, right? It's just yeah. a question of how big of a problem is it going to be. 
Yep. They said this is the second largest bank failure after the 2008 collapse of Washington Mutual. I was wondering if it was Wachovia or Washington Mutual. I couldn't remember which one was bigger. Those were the two this big is... ones, right? From 2008, yeah. I think. Wow. I mean, I really hope that none of the critical apps in the accounting and finance ecosystem are, you know, lose access to their deposits because of this. That could create some havoc for us. Um, I wonder, I mean, I know that I I worked for a company that had SVB. We, we were banked at SVB. I think everybody does pretty much, right? All the, it's like all the Silicon Valley startups, all the San Francisco ones. I think they said 43% of startups have a relationship with Silicon Valley Bank. Now, if wow. you go to tech, it's probably like 90%, right? Yeah, 80, right, it's right. much higher. Yeah. If, well, it, I mean, in the last eight or nine years, that's decade, anytime you've gone out with any startup and they offer to buy dinner or pay for drinks, they always pull out an SVP card because it's kind of like the thing to have. Like, look, we, we're tied to Silicon Valley Bank, right? Like, it's, it's so many. So uh, going back in our ADHD manner to the discussion of fraud, Tr- <laughs> Trinity says the young auditors might find it, but they might be gaslighted into believing that they can't possibly – that can't possibly be what that means because they're not confident in their own abilities yet. Right. And this so I have a to, story to that if I can real quick. Oh, Yes, absolutely. So I worked, I worked with somebody. I I know somebody that had mentioned one time, you know, a company that had been public. Some people were like, how, you know, how is the company ever public? Because of some of the, you know, controls and things they had. He goes, the company was real careful what they showed to the auditors. And I thought that was real interesting when you talk about gaslighting, like, you know, trying to mm-hmm. present what they wanted them to see because, you know, there were some real challenges with this organization. And I think if, you had very experienced auditors, they may not have been able to pass. Right. And so I definitely think that happens. The gaslighting, I don't know if, you know, gaslighting is the right word, but there's a certain amount of trying to be very careful in what you see and how you present it and whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it to allow you to, you know, look better than you may really be when you truly pull back all the covers. Oh, yeah. Well, so I, this is not the same, but I was part of an, uh, the team responding to an IRS audit and- the CPA leading that engagement said, do not give them anything they do not ask for. Mm-hmm. Do not volunteer anything. Do not say anything. Only exactly what they ask for and no more. Yeah. Right. And if you do that to a young auditor, like they don't know what to ask. They don't know what's missing. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Relay. Between Blake and myself, we now have three, four, or maybe five business entities, 20 or so checking accounts, and dozens and dozens of virtual cards. It would be impossible to manage all of this if we weren't using Relay as our small business bank. Relay is truly a part of the tech stack we use to run our businesses. Relay allows Blake and I to each have our own logins, we can grant access to our team, and even our accountant without sharing passwords or two-factor authentication codes. Relay allows us to grow and scale our banking needs without ever going into a physical branch. I recently added an account to receive inbound merchant services with just a few clicks and had to create a payroll checking account. Again, just a few clicks and I instantly had access to my ACH info to give to my payroll provider. With Relay's virtual cards, we can issue debit cards to our team around the world for needed business expenses. I can instantly spin up a new Visa debit card and set both daily and monthly spending limits. And when a team member doesn't need their card, I can freeze it until they need to use it again. To learn more about using Relay in your firm and with your clients, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Relay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash R-E-L-A-Y. Uh, well, staying on fraud, I'm just going to go through my list of fraud stories here. This is a fun one. <laughs> I saw this on NPR. There's no whiskey in bottles of Fireball Cinnamon, so customers are this. suing for fraud. Now, if you thought that Fireball actually contained whiskey, I question your cognitive abilities. But to be fair, they did advertise it as such. Um, com- <laughs> Here's the story. Consumers are suing Sazerac Company, Inc., the makers of Fireball Whiskey, for fraud and misrepresentation as the mini bottles of the alcoholic beverage don't actually contain whiskey. The smaller bottles, named Fireball Cinnamon, are made from a blend of malt, beverage, and wine. Oh, that's gross. While the whiskey-based products are called Fireball Cinnamon Whiskey, according to the company website. 
These are 99-cent bottles sold in 170,000 stores, including gas stations and grocery stores, and it prompted some customers to wonder what products they presumed to contain liquor were doing there. Uh, so combination of, I guess, I mean, is it, is it fraud or is it false advertising? It's more is, false because they basically, they, they, had to, they had to brew a different product to sell in those stores. Oh. And, and that's basically what they did. I, I think it's more product, on the line right? of false advertising. I mean, they're still yeah. providing a product. They, were people aware? It's like, I don't, were they really trying to deceive people thinking it really was whiskey or is it just a marketing scheme and they really shouldn't use that name? I guess the takeaway here is that often fraud is used out of the technical meaning of it, right? The meaning that we understand anything that is deceitful can be called fraud uh, in the in the public eye, mm-hmm. but it is not often. And that's how it got into my feed. David. I have a you story got- in, in I got Paul. It's a little bit of an app news story, but I don't want to shift straight into app news. But I think with Paul here, I wanted the opportunity to ask it. I'm going to put this in the uh, the chat here. Okay. So Ramp is a company. They uh, basically it's like expense tracking, right? Yep. Like Ro, right? Divi, other companies like yeah, that. Yeah. Right? Well, they just raised five million dollars to build a user and revenue forecasting platform. And so one thing I've always and you said you've spoken, Paul, to sixty, seventy apps. I've when I was built uh, vetting apps for the QuickBooks App Store, I know I spoke to fifty quote unquote dashboard or FP&A style type of apps. And the part I never could get that my head around is the revenue part because. Unless they're a subscription business, which most, the vast majority, let's just say businesses on QuickBooks or Zero are not, like you don't know what invoice is. If you can't see the invoices coming, how can you project the revenue as an app or as an FP&A person? Like, can you kind of speak to, like, what are they going to build with this $5 million? Yeah. Like, if so you can speculate. Uh, I will speculate that they're going to go SaaS some kind of revenue forecasting tool around SaaS, but we'll see. But I mean, yeah, it gets difficult, right? Forecasting. There are some things you can do. If you're any kind of sales business where you have a sales leadership team, you're going to make assumptions around, okay, what is each salesperson? What can they realistically sell? What's their quota? What's their ramp time? You're also going to make assumptions around, okay, how many marketing, you know, if we spend, you know, 5 million on Facebook, that results in 5,000 qualified leads. And you can kind of, you'll come up with different metrics. If you're an e-commerce site, right? If I spend this much advertising, I should be able to drive this many people to the site. Here's my click-through rate. So I think really many it's data that's not accounting data though. You're, you're using other data. Correct. Yeah. A lot of data. it's yeah, going to yeah. be other yeah. than accounting. You're not, rarely do you, I mean, outside of using historical to project forward, which I would argue is not the best way to do it in most cases, especially with all the uncertainty, you're using other leading indicators. You want operational metrics, not accounting data to forecast your revenue in most situations. Not always the case, but I'd say 95% of the time, or more, give me the operational metrics all day long over the accounting data to forecast. And this to me is why nobody in accounting has built an automated forecasting tool that actually works yet. I have not seen one. <laughs> yeah. Excel is still king. Now there are <laughs> FP&A tools that basically take what Excel does and put it on Rails, but it's essentially the same concept. But nobody has built you know, QuickBooks has tried to do it. Zero has tried to do it. They tried to build these cash flow forecasting tools and they don't work. And the reason they don't work is because they're not bringing in the operational data. And if you're just forecasting based on revenue that came in last month, last week or yeah, whatever. Yeah, look at my old invoices. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's not like revenue in most businesses follows the historical trend, right? Yeah, exactly. So you have to bring in the operational data, but doing that is really challenging so, well, and that's why you're seeing more and more FP&A tools do it. If you look at what's called third generation tools, you know, most of them are bringing in CRM data in addition to your ERP and your HR data. I just saw one the other day, a tool, I think it's called Bainbridge, if I remember right. There's another one, Blue Copa, but there's a couple specifically focused on e-commerce. I know one of them brings in your Spotify data, right? Mm-hmm. I had another one, uh, Corm Software does a tool for oil companies. And so they bring in the data around your all your different drills in your sites, which is similar to CRM data. So you're seeing more and more bringing in whatever that key data is that you need to forecast revenue. Because it's not always the CRM, right? For most companies, it's the CRM, but you have you know, different companies that need different things brought in to understand that from an operational perspective. And without it, you know, outside of doing top down, 
it's real or just using a historical trend line, which usually gets you in trouble. It's just a question of when, not if. It's really hard to forecast. Mm. So that's interesting. It seems like there's an opportunity there to create these forecasting budgeting tools that are specific to a particular type of business and and just nail it for that business. Like you said, oil and gas. We've seen a lot of them focus on SaaS, which makes sense, right? Because they're SaaS companies themselves. It's very mm-hmm. easy to build for yourself. The general purpose FP&A tools are really hard to build because they have to be super flexible. You know, and yep. to be as fl- flexible as Excel is, well, Excel is a 30-year journey to build, right? Yep. So, I mean, yeah, what are... The, are there any other like specific industry FP&A tools that you see that are really cool? Yeah, there, there are definitely some specific industry tools. So, you know, even stepping back just a little bit to add a little color to this, right? Excel is always going to be more flexible than a purpose-built tool because one, Excel is on structured data. As soon as you add a database, you bring structured data into the equation, you give up some flexibility. And mm-hmm. so that's always been the challenge with planning tools. But then speaking industry-specific, you know, you have Mosaic which is very much a B2B tool, very specific on that. You got a focus software, which really focuses on manufacturing, um, retail. You have a few different tools that focus on what companies with heavy transactions, lots of products, transactions. Farseer is an example. Like I said, Blue Copa. There's one I was talking to somebody. I know he's building it out over his app, but he was building one for nonprofit there's one out there for government, but the vast majority say they you know, support pretty much their industry agnostic, which, yes, you can do that, but there, there's some challenges, right? Every industry is unique. And so what they'll say is, yeah, we can bring in whatever data. We can use our API or figure it out with a CSV or whatever the process may be. They can always bring in the data, but there are some benefits to sometimes just going with that purpose-built tool that's really good at what it does, right? Like, I can add any ERP I want, but if I'm a startup, I'm going to go with, you know, a Zoho or a QuickBooks or a Sage because that's what they're, you know, or Zero, no Sage, Zero or whoever, right? Because that's what they're good at. I'm not going to implement Oracle or SAP. Sure, could I if I had the money? Yes, but why would I do that? So, David, I want to talk about ChatGPT because <laughs> it's never going to I mean, this is going to be a trend that goes on for a while. I saw a really cool use case for it that I wanted to highlight for our listeners. This is uh, a tweet thread from Greg Eisenberg, who is, I forget where he works. He's an advisor at Reddit. He said, imagine a multi-billion dollar client who refused to pay you for good work rendered. Most people would turn to lawyers. I turned to chat GPT. (laughs) Here's the story of how I recovered 109,000 $500 $500 without spending a dime on legal fees. So lawyers, watch out. ChatGPT is coming for you. <laughs> Last year, we did some design work for a mainstream brand. They loved the work and kept asking for more. We kept on under-promising and over-delivering, and life was good until the communication stopped. Our design agency had has completed hundreds of projects with millions in revenue in design and engineering and had never once had someone completely ghost us on payments. It so was these thrilling. are his tweets. These are not AI you're reading, uh, you're reading well, his tweets. I don't know. Maybe he used AI to write them, but okay. this is his story about using ChatGPT. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So basically, big corporate client did a hundred, hundreds of thousands of dollars of work, or at least a hundred, right? And uh, ghosted them, right? Which, you know, like you don't really expect that to happen with a big corporate client. No. So Greg had to step in. And instead of sending another email that might fall on deaf ears or hiring an expensive lawyer to initiate debt collections, I had an idea. What if ChatGPT could draft a bit more of a scary email to draw attention? At the very least, I'd learn something. The cost of ChatGPT, $0. The cost of our lawyer to send this notice, $1,000. So we asked ChatGPT to present, pretend to draft a scary collection email so we can recover the $109,500 owed to us. And he posts the prompt. The prompt is pretend you work in the finance department and your job is to collect payments from clients. Draft a scary email that gets XYZ <laughs> client to pay for the services rendered but hasn't responded to five emails. The invoices are five months overdue. And the response is just outstanding. I'm going to read the response that ChatGPT wrote. Dear client, we regret to inform you that despite several attempts to contact you regarding your overdue account, we have not received any response from you. Your account is now five months past due and your outstanding balance is blah, blah, blah for the services rendered. As a responsible company, we have always given our clients the benefit of the doubt and provided ample opportunities to make payments. However, your lack of response and failure to settle the outstanding balance has forced us to take serious action. 
We remind you that failure to pay the amount owed may result in severe consequences, including legal action and damage to your credit rating. We urge you to act immediately to avoid any such consequences and pay the amount owed within the next three business days. If we do not receive payment or satisfactory response from you within this time, we will have no choice but to escalate the matter matter further, and all costs incurred will be added to your account balance. We understand that you may be going through difficult times, but we have a responsibility to our shareholders and employees to ensure the timely payment of all outstanding balances. We hope that you understand our position and take immediate steps to settle the overdue amount. Thank you for your attention to this matter, and we look forward to receiving payment as soon as possible. Sincerely, Sender. Is that just not incredible? It, like, I think we've shown this now. It's really good at creating letters. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. Like, it's very, very good at that. Um, we've we've shown that for firing your clients, you proved that concept. Um, onboarding letters, like it's very very good at those types of things. To the point where you almost shouldn't do it yourself anymore. It's worth even. What, what are you paying for the subscription now to ChatGPT, the professional one, Blake? Well, I've still been able to use ChatGPT for free, but I also subscribe to Jasper, which okay. you know layers more tools on top of OpenAI tech. It's all cheaper than QuickBooks. So whatever it's you all pay like- for QuickBooks, this is cheaper. <laughs> yeah. And and just think about that. Zero dollars versus a hundred dollars for a lawyer. Thousand now, thousand thousand for a lawyer. Thousand dollars, right. Yeah, you can you can do your, your threatening uh, communication uh through ChatGBT. And the thing that's you know amazing is that it worked, right? He got paid. The CEO was scared and, and paid him. So how much of that routine communication is gonna be automated by ChatGPT? I think like ninety percent of it is gonna be automated. And we're just gonna check the output and send. Once the email programs get this built in, once you've got it in Outlook and you've got it in Gmail, it's going to draft most of your communications for you. And just think how much time we waste on email every single day, right? Hours some people are spending in emails. I don't reply to you anymore. It's just automated. <laughs> it's just automated? You're I'm just talking automated David's, responses now. David's AI? Yeah. yeah. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Client Hub. We've been talking about the lack of accountants lately, and I'm guessing you may have your own shortage this busy season. And with accounting teams spending more than 30% of their time chasing clients for information, ClientHub can help you gain one third of a body just by getting needed information from clients quickly. ClientHub automatically sends your clients a task for each expense or deposit marked as uncategorized in QuickBooks. Your client then can respond via their simple web experience or even their highly rated mobile app. Your team will save hours of time and the best part that it's free. Introducing the free ClientHub recategorization plan. ClientHub is bringing the freemium business model to accounting apps. They're so confident that you, your team, and your clients will love the free recategorize plan that it will lead you to implement all the features of the award-winning ClientHub into your firm's workflows and communications. Using ClientHub in your workflow is a guaranteed ROI, especially since it's free. To get ClientHub's new recategorize plan for free, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash clienthub. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-L-I-E-N-T-H-U-B. This is another one we can tie Paul into here because, you know, it's uh, it's about cash burn. Okay. And it also ties to, you know, the, like, you know, the, I I mean, the the SVB paint crash is really, discouraging for our industry, right? And now here's another discouraging report that came out, Blake, if you click on this article. Okay, I'll get it. Go March ahead and I'll, I'll get it going. But essentially, finance companies, fintech, you know, which is the space we're in, burned $12 billion in cash in 2022. And just according to this report, they came out, only 17 of the 91 newly listed tech companies that have reported results this year have shown a net profit. Mm-hmm. With cash burning firms spending thirty seven percent of their IPO proceeds last year, so it's like these these fintech companies, and these are these are basically the public ones. Mm-hmm. Right? Like think about all the thousand unicorns in the fintech right that exist that have taken you know billion dollar valuations, have taken hundreds of millions of dollars of VC money, and they've blown it on you know hoodies and these other things. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, look, David, you know we we see it ourselves, right? We see companies that are clearly, you know, spend happy. Um, that have a lot of people they don't necessarily need. And that's why we see the big news is zero laid off 15% of their workforce. You know, like that's a lot of people. And I believe that's, do you know if that's globally or was that just in the US? I think it it might be. It looked like it was globally. I, I, and unfortunately I haven't seen, I've been trying to look at 
you know, Twitter or, or LinkedIn to see who we might know that's affected. But my, like, unfortunately, my hunch is it's going to be a lot in the U.S. only because the market share has been so small, yeah. and, which is really disappointing. And, and, and I just think we're, things are getting very real. It, it was like the tech layoffs are starting to come into our space very deeply. And this is the perfect example of it zero getting hit yeah. by this. And I wish they had gone harder into the U.S. to begin with, right? Like it's, this is going to go down in maybe not in the MBA textbooks, but definitely in the world of fintech as a, as a huge mistake to make these big moves 10 years ago to come to the U.S. and challenge into it, but not to give the resources to the U.S. team they actually needed. And then it just gave into it five, 10 years to catch up yeah. and look at what happened, right? QuickBooks Online dominates. And, and two, it'll be the story in business schools, right? The, the right. shift from desktop to cloud, yeah. Yeah, they saw, they got poked, right? They're the bear that got poked and woke up and said, oh, crap. And they they moved. Huge, like that doesn't happen a lot where like the, the entrenched player actually disrupts their own business. And to the point where they're ending support for their desktop point of sale, they're just giving that business to Shopify. I, I bet you the end of QuickBooks desktop is not that long away. I bet you they're going to force everybody over because I would, it make- I would imagine so. Well, I'm yeah. a party for that. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, my like, you don't want to see news like this. No. Right? You know, it's it's hitting very close to home, and, and I suspect it's not over. And I also have seen some you know articles like there's probably going to start seeing a lot of consolidation. Yeah. These startups that are going to be money hit hard are going to be gobbled up by into it, and even zero. I mean, them doing something like this puts them in a stronger cash position. Right? Absolutely. You're going to see these companies get purchased over and over again. I even saw an article that was like saying you should short bill.com because now that Intuit's going to build their own bill pay mm-hmm. and the uh, the contract ends um, the end of June 2023 or something like that, that maybe you should be the whole article making an argument to short bill.com. Oh, wow. You know, like things are getting yeah. very tight and interesting out here right now. Well, you know, it's good because this, it's creative destruction, right? When there was all this free money floating around essentially or cheap, not free, but super Base, cheap money. Virtually free. Yeah. That, you know, VCs could make investments that were not really thought out. And all these startup founders got money. And we saw we saw companies pop up that are essentially vaporware spending $100 million on marketing on vaporware. And now they're going to go away. And the money is going to go to the companies that are, you know, really building tools that solve problems. And speaking of tools that solve problems, Paul, you posted this link into the chat. The headline is a startup CFO used ChatGPT to build an FP&A tool. Here's how it went. What's the deal with this? Yeah, so I actually had this guy, his name's Glenn Hopper. He'll be on my podcast next Tuesday. I interviewed him a little over last week, last stuff goes Friday. And mm-hmm. so what he did is he's an AI guy. He's written a book about kind of AI and modern finance. And he decided to see if he could build basically a tool using ChatGPT. So what he did is he came up with the the three financial statements. He put them in a CSV file. Everything else he used ChatGPT. He said, write the script for me to load this to an SQL database. He used Google Collab, I think, so it was free. And it wrote the code. He loaded it. Then it asked him to write the scripts to create all the different ratios he needed to analyze the data. It wrote all the scripts and stored it. And what he finally ended up doing is he went all the way to build a bot that he could ask questions for different ratios. And he, he printed a 30-page report on it. And so it wrote all the Python script, and he just followed the different scripts and basically built a basic tool that he could use to analyze this set of data that it had created the database for, basically. You know, wow. it created all the instructions. So, you know, I want to know, you know, what's my current ratio? And you could drop a bunch of data into this tool, and it'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so I know people are using ChatGPT to get back, you know, code. Can you, is anybody using ChatGPT? If I'm like, write me an Excel formula for X. Yes. And it gives you it in context. Is anybody, have we heard any stories? Oh, I've seen that yet? a ton of that. I've seen someone who's even built, uh, Leela Garani has a video on YouTube where what she did is she, via the API. So it's chat three, it's, uh, I think it's chat three versus GPT, which is their API. Mm-hmm. She incorporated the API directly in Excel. So she could ask it questions and it would return the data in her Excel file directly. But yeah, you can have it write formulas for Excel. You can analyze it like I've tried, and I'm going to do some more of this as I stuck in some data and said, what's the best graph to use? 
for this data set. You can only do up to a thousand rows. So it's not going to do any large data sets. They've limited it for obvious reasons, you know, how many people have on it. But it immediately turned back what I would have considered the number one answer for that data set of how it should have graphed it. And so you can do things like that. You can ask it, you know, you can put in a, a PL and ask it to analyze it and it will give you trends because it's small enough. So just imagine what it can do when you've got the Excel plugin for OpenAI and it can access all your data in that mm-hmm. sheet. Yeah, that's yeah. the next step, right? Microsoft's yeah. putting it into being. The next step is Office. Yeah, they already Excel. have it in yeah. Teams. Yeah. They have an AI, they incorporated it into their uh, AI note taker for Teams. It's a premium subscription. It's like $7 a month or something extra. What did Microsoft pay? For $20 it? billion? $40 billion? What did they, what did they, they made a, it, right? They made a $10 billion investment. $10 billion. I, I don't yeah. know what that got them in terms of equity. but It's going to be a Microsoft Office. <laughs> or what's oh, it yeah. called now? Well, they did Office a second investment yeah. where they basically got like, they own like, the second investment gave them 80% of revenue till they're paid off from it. And they have an exclusive right to use it in any of their products. I think the exclusivity is what's the real value there. I, I agree. Yeah. The revenue is, it's the exclusivity 100%. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've already seen Microsoft do some pretty cool things with PowerPoint. I've been using for the last few years, the automated slide formatting in PowerPoint, where it, it you open mm-hmm. up the, the tool and a little sidebar opens and it says, you know, you've typed in the headline and the bullet points, and then it creates this, you know, layout for you. Yep. And that's AI. And it's great. It's mm-hmm. like so good. I, I use it in my presentations when I talk about technology. And I say, by the way, this entire slide deck was designed by Microsoft's <laughs> AI. And they're just getting better and better and better at this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I, I use it all the time, the designer. I use it, some of yeah. Excel's AI, right? You can have it analyze data sets today. Really? Well, you can, yeah. If you put yeah. in a data set... And you ask it to analyze it, will give you a bunch of things it found from it. Like on the right-hand side, like 20 or 30 different things to look at. That's so cool. And, and it can like, yeah, I, I've seen it, you know, suggest charts. Mm-hmm. So I guess that would be basically the same thing. Yeah, right? suggesting charts yeah. or saying, hey, you know, we noticed this is the highest. So it does, it does yeah. do some of that. You know, flash fill is really a simple form of kind of AI or machine learning, you know, fuzzy logic with Power Query. So there's, I think there's five different areas, five or six areas in Excel today that use some level of that type of stuff. And in Google Sheets, I've seen autocomplete start to show up in Google Sheets now mm-hmm. where I'll, I'll start, I'll press equal to write a formula and then it will just suggest one based on the data that's in the surrounding cells. And often, you know, I'm, I'm not like a super great Excel Google Sheets user. So the formulas are super basic that I'm doing, it, you know, it saves me time though, not having to write the sum function, right? Not having to, not having to like do any of that stuff. It's just automatic. It sort of it reminds me of the autocomplete that you get in Gmail now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get it in Outlook as well. Yep. And and they learn from that, right? <laughs> Whenever I use the formula, they learn that this was a good situation in which to use it. We got a question from one of our live stream viewers. Amir said, "Which GL do you think?" will be the first to execute well in embedding AI and LLM into their software. David, I'll let you take that one first. I mean, like, bank feeds are essentially that, right? Mm-hmm. It's there already. Well, now, the I think the promise of, of it, you know, I mean, we were at Cooper's Connect five years ago, and they had this little thing called QB whatever, and it was like this chat thing that come up, and, and they would show, like, this conceptual video of driving in the car and be like, and this AI would talk to you and tell you, oh, you need to order more flour because, you know, you just got this order for the loaves of bread. That probably will happen faster now that there's this open API and these can be built. Because I don't think Intuit was going to build that level on their own. But the concept, like the march is there. And if for all the companies that are spinning up versions of this on top of the open API, I don't necessarily know if it's like when I say somebody might do it first, like we're talking three weeks ahead of somebody else. I think they're all going to have it in the next quarter. Every single GL is going to drop some some integration of this built in. Yeah. They have to. They, they have to because the street demands it to some extent. I've already seen a few FP&A tools incorporate ChatGPT, and I know of others that are working on it just from conversations. So I'm sure all, right, everybody has a strategy. If you don't, you're going to get left behind. Yeah. And like you said, David, the bank feeds, the automatic coding of transactions into the correct accounts, like that is something that ChatGPT is just going to do so much better than what these, what what Intuit has built themselves. Well, especially if they allow, if Intuit can retrain some of ChatGPT based on Intuit's data set, yeah, they're the ones with the billions and billions and billions of transactions, that gives them a competitive advantage. Oh, huge. Yeah. Nobody's going to be able to have their ChatGPT do that as well as Intuit because they have the data. 
I'm also thinking like expense reporting. That's a hugely time-consuming yeah. process. It's probably the thing that employees touch the most across, you know, it's the accounting and finance function that impacts everybody. And you can automatically approve expense reports now with certain applications using rules. There's no reason why ChatGPT couldn't do a really good job of reviewing expense reports and approving them. Yeah, I mean, train it. think of a company like Apple or something, right? Train it with all yeah. its expense reports for the last couple of years. And I imagine it would have a 99%, you know, pretty quickly a 99 plus percent accuracy. Yeah. I mean, it would probably do a really good job of figuring out which of those, you know, steakhouses are actually strip clubs, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I want to pivot us to one other good tech. Oh, sorry, David. Can I, oh, can I do yeah, one? Go ahead. I, we're going to, we're going to do our flip flopping. Across, you know, fraud, auditing, and then back to tech, if that's okay with you. We're well, mine's, yeah, be... mine's IRS, so I can pivot off of this because okay. you have the word government there. So, well, so we're, talking, we're talking earlier about how 41% of companies, uh, it's estimated that 41% of companies are misleading with their financial statements, and 10% of large publicly traded companies are committing securities fraud right now that we're not, we don't know about. This is an article in Accounting Today. The headline is, Study Finds Selecting Auditors Randomly Leads to Financial Improvement. Really? Wow. Amazing. So you're saying that when companies don't select their own auditors, we get better financials. Go figure. When a municipal government loses the ability to appoint its own auditor and is instead assigned one at random, financial performance tends to improve. This is the conclusion of a recent working paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research. The study drew on detailed data on all municipal budgets provided by the Italian Ministry of the Interior including information on municipal government spending and revenue sources such as local taxes, current expenditures, investments, debts, debts, and transfers. Uh, so it was based on the Italian market, but I think you know, we can probably assume that this would make an improvement here in the U.S. too. So I think the evidence is there that if we want to get better financial reports, maybe we should be assigning auditors randomly. You know, the SEC could assign auditors randomly to companies or the uh, maybe the stock exchanges could do it like Nasdaq and you know could assign the auditors if you want to be listed on the exchange you got to let them do it i know that wouldn't be popular with the bigger firms but i can't see can't Nasdaq see reason not could to do could take it. all cpa candidates and they could use this as like an apprenticeship program apprenticeship program and nasdaq could manage the whole thing and that's part of your deal you can't become a cpa till you work for it's it's like uh the Peace Corps or something. Like you go to work for NASBA for two years doing these audits independently. Hey, you know, I like it. Make that happen. I'm, I'm on board. And you know what? Then we'd have control over the salaries, right? Because <laughs> you could raise salaries. And the, the, the big firms aren't going to do it because they want their partners making half a million dollars to a million dollars or more every year. I mean, it's just crazy. Like you think about that, right? You get entry-level auditors in like New York City making sixty to $70,000 a year can barely afford to survive and the partners there are making 10, 20, 30 times as much. So so speaking of something that's 20 fold or 20 times as much. So the IRS, you know we've talked about this before they they've had their digital intake scanning initiative. Mhm. So already in 2023, which we're only what, not even a quarter in, they've scanned more than 120,000 paper form 940s. This is 20 fold increase over all of 2022. Nice. And they plan on uh, expanding this to 1040 income tax returns for individuals and 941 soon as well. So like kudos to the IRS, like finally like catching up, right? They truly are making an impact. I wonder what that operation looks like. Do you think they've got like, you know, a thousand people sitting in a big room with scan snaps, (laughs) Fujitsu scan snaps, opening up mail and putting the 1040. There's high volume. I I went to the um, Kodak Alaris which is they make a scanner. Kodak bought this company, Alaris or whatever. And I went to their conference um, to do a talk. And yeah, this document scanning imaging thing, there's these high volume machines that you just stick in thousands of pages and they're just scanning way, like faster than any Xerox copy machine you've ever seen in your life. Like it's pretty impressive at the high volume, the way they do these. But this is a big deal. Like the fact that they have made this progress. And then also speaking of the IRS or the Treasury, did you see uh, Danny Werfield finally got approved? Oh, yeah. The new uh, commissioner. Commissioner. And it's not approved. the Danny, Danny Werfield, the old is it what, Florida State quarterback. It's not that guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Danny Werfield. Yeah, that's the old Florida State quarterback. Yeah, Florida State. Yeah. What is it with these IRS guys having the same names as uh, 
as football players. I feel like this happened before in one of our stories. Well, that was a movie, right? Uh, Johnny Utah from uh, Point Point Blank. No, what was that movie? I don't Point remember. <laughs> well, David, uh, we are just about at the top of the hour. Anything else that we got to discuss now before we go? I think I don't know. I I'm want- just checking Twitter to make sure, like, apparently Wells Fargo is trending because you can't move money at Wells Fargo right now, and they're saying it's a glitch, but kind of interesting because all the banks are tied oh. together. All the banks are tied. We might be witnessing the collapse. Like right now, we're live streaming the collapse of the U.S. economy. That Excuse would be... me, guys. I'm going to go pull my money out of my bank. I'll be back in a moment. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to – let's see. Uh, uh, can I log into Bank of America? Um, all right. Well, on that note, David, I hope that I'll see you here next week. And, Paul, if our listeners want to follow you online, you know, where should they go? Yeah, probably the best way to find me is on LinkedIn. I'm the FPNA guy. They can go Paul Barnhurst. I also have my own website, thefpnaguy.com. And then last, if anyone's interested in listening to the podcast, it's uh, FPNA Today, and it's on all your different platforms, Apple, Spotify, etc. And David, where are you? Uh, I'm just on all the socials, at David Leary, assuming these companies still exist next week. <laughs> I am I am at Blake T. Oliver. Do follow us on YouTube. You can... Uh, join us live. We always love that. Next week, we've got Matt Foreman joining us. He's a tax lawyer. We're going to learn what tax lawyers do, uh, get his hot take, hopefully as hot a take as he gives on Twitter, we'll get on this show. Should be a lot of fun. Uh, And yeah, thanks everyone for joining us. I I have to say, so what people are reporting is Wells Fargo, people did not get their paychecks this morning from direct deposit. Oh, no. Like the Wells Fargo employees or well, uh, that... people who bank with Wells Fargo, like money's not. Wow, this we is not we good. had that happen when I worked at a company once. They switched banks and nobody got paid, and you know most of us were fine. They got it figured by like Saturday. I think I'll be checked. But the call center, they were literally the guy who was the head of the call center had to go and get cards and put people so they could pay their bills because some of them would be short. And he's handing out and trying to make sure. Because it took them like a day to resolve it when they switched banks on how they mess things up. It's a nightmare when that happens. Oh, boy. Well, this, I don't think this is a one. It's not like one company made a mistake or changed banks. Yeah, like, no, this is something much else bigger going than on. That. Very so bad. I can only here. imagine the so scale. We probably the... should just, you know, disconnect <laughs> and go enjoy this on our own. <laughs> yeah. Well, this might be our top story next week. All right, Paul, All don't right. go anywhere after I end the stream. Okay. We need to upload the files. Bye, everyone. Time for the classifieds. ClientHub automatically sends your clients a task for each expense or deposit marked as uncategorized in QuickBooks. Your team will save hours of time, and the best part that it's free. Introducing the free ClientHub recategorized plan. ClientHub is bringing the freemium business model to accounting apps. They are so confident that you, your team, and your clients will love the free recategorized plan that will lead you to implement all the features of the award-winning ClientHub into your firm's workflows and communications. Using ClientHub in your workflow is a guaranteed ROI, especially since it is free. To schedule your demo, go to clienthub.app. That's clienthub.app. Check out Hector Garcia's new app called Right Tool for QuickBooks Online. Instantly increase your productivity with keyboard shortcuts and more. It will save you seconds. The app is free and offers a pro version with additional batching tools. Check them out at righttool.app. That's righttool.app, R-I-G-H-T-T-O-O-L dot app. Is it possible to scale your firm while significantly reducing your workload so you can spend more time with your family? That's what Marie Phillips did when she tripled the revenues of her multi-seven-figure firm thanks to Future Firm Accelerate. Designed for busy firm owners, Future Firm Accelerate gives you the system, training, coaching, and the community you need to systemize your firm so that you can scale it while working less. The program is built around founder and CPA Ryan Lozanis' six-part Future Firm framework, which he used to scale and sell his own firm, Zen Accounting, to a major international organization in just five short years. To learn more and join over 700 other modern firm owners scaling their businesses, go to www dot futurefirmaccelerate.com that's www.futurefirmaccelerate.com 
We don't like uncategorized transactions, but we do like cats, and we love Uncat. Thousands of accountants and bookkeepers have switched from sending spreadsheets of uncategorized transactions to their clients every month to using Uncat. It's easy. Uncat syncs with QuickBooks and gets clients' responses back so fast, you can close the books on time, every time. And you're going to love the price. Uncat is just $5 per month per client. And bonus, start a 14-day free trial at Uncat.com, and they'll send you a $5 Starbucks gift card. Get yours at Uncat.com. Are you tired of spending hours manually adjusting your balance sheet and reconciling your accounts every month? Say hello to NetTracker. Automate tedious tasks such as adjustments for depreciation, prepaid expenses, accruals, and deferred revenue. With just a few clicks, selected balance sheet accounts are updated and reconciled. No more stress and hassle every month. NetTracker makes monthly financial reporting a breeze. Try it now with QuickBooks Online, Zero or Sage Business Cloud, and see how much time and energy you can save. www.nettracker.com. That's www.nett-tracker.com. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.